that Kissingerism is so hard to pin down, I think, is an effect of Kissingerism, of the rehabilitation of the national security state and the relentless militarism that goes with it, constant, unending war, be it fought with neocon zealotry or, or drone-like efficiency, has done more than caution thought and morality. I think it's brought about a disassociation of words and things, beliefs and actions, in which abstractions are transmuted into their opposites. According to Clinton, Hillary Clinton, idealists are realists, and everybody is liberal, and Henry Kissinger is our avatar. That's Greg Grandin, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Greg Grandin on Kissingerisms. Turning 100, the accolades for Henry Kissinger are pouring in. He is a legend. Over decades, he has assiduously cultivated and constructed the image of the sagacious elder statesman. Corporate journalists hang on his every word. Politicians seek his advice. But what is his record to deserve such respect and reverence? He's one of the most notorious characters of this or any other period in history. Ask the Kurds, the East Timorese, the Bangladeshis, the Laotians, and the Chileans what they think of the Nobel Peace Prize laureate. But since they are unpeople, their opinions don't count. When he was Nixon's national security advisor, Kissinger displayed his kowtowing to power when he kept silent as his boss made anti-Semitic remarks. When Nixon demanded that Cambodia be bombed, he conveyed the order like a good errand boy. It was Kissinger who once boasted, the illegal we do immediately, the unconstitutional takes a little longer. To talk about Henry Kissinger is Greg Grandin, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He's professor of history at Yale. He's the author of The End of the Myth, The Blood of Guatemala, and Kissinger's Shadow. His articles appear in the Los Angeles Times, The Nation, and The New York Times. This classic from the AR archives was recorded at the University of Montana in 2015. And now, Greg Grandin. I'd like to start with the headline from the Associate Press, August 9th, 1973, that unfortunately sounds as if um, it could be from last week. Uh, and the headline is, um, Bombing of Hospitals Called Routine. That headline introduced a story uh, that, con that Congress was holding hearings on clandestine activities, uh, air activities and ground activities in Cambodia and Laos. And it reported that US commanders in Vietnam placed no restrictions on ground or air attacks against uh, either Viet Cong or, or North Vietnamese hospitals. In, in testimony and in letters from uh, veterans, uh, it was reported that hospitals were often considered targets rather than areas to be avoided. In one testimony by Alan Stevenson, who was a stockbroker from San Francisco, but he was also a former Army intelligence specialist, uh, Stevenson reported that um, while he was in the Guang Tri province in 1969, he routinely listed hospitals among targets to be struck by American fighter planes. The bigger the hospital, the better it was, Stevenson testified. He said that he believed hospitals were rated highly as potential targets, not because American commanders 
wanted to attack wounded enemy troops, but because hospital complex were often protected by company or battalion-sized troop units. And in Cambodia, too, the U.S. targeted hospitals. A letter from one former army captain said that in 1969 and 1970, his job was analyzing aerial photo uh, photographs from B-52 bombs uh, dropped on Cambodia, and he saw on several occasions where hospitals had been bombed. Uh, another Air Force ca captain, another former aircraft cap captain, Gerald Grieven, said that he personally ordered bombing raids against hospitals. It was policy, he said, to, quote, look for hospitals as targets. The report also noted that General Creighton Abrams, who was then the Army Chief of Staff and a former commander of U.S. forces in Vietnam, had testified to Congress that he had um, carried out a false reporting system designed to cover up the Ill illegal bombing of Cambodia uh, between 1969 and 1970. Uh, he said he didn't create the double bookkeeping system that he, that he testified about. Um, he said at one point there were so many different authorizations and reporting systems being applied to the secret covert operations that he had trouble keeping things straight himself. The AP report then, on, then went on to say that congressional investigators were stymied trying to, quote, determine who ordered a dual reporting system in which 3,630 B-52 raids uh, over Cambodia between 1969 and 1970 were recorded falsely as having occurred in South Vietnam. And that person that wasn't identified in 1973, but was identified later by the investigative journalist Seymour Hersh, was, was Henry Kissinger. Richard Nixon was inaugurated in January uh, 20th, 1969. And a month later, on, on February 24th, Kissinger, his national security advisor, and Kissinger's military aide, General Alexander Haig, met with the colonel in the Air Force, Ray Sinton, to begin the planning of Operation Menu, as the, as the code name for the bombing of Cambodia was called. Menu had to be kept absolutely secret because Nixon, elected promising to end the conflict, feared the public backlash that an escalation of the war into Cambodia might provoke. Secrecy was also required to circumvent Congress, which exercised its power over the armed services largely uh, through the appropriations of funds needed to conduct specific missions. Uh, many, including Nixon and Kissinger, felt that Congress wouldn't approve the bombing of Cambodia since Cambodia was a neutral country and that the United States wasn't at war with. So Kissinger, Haig, and Sidden came up with a, with a simple but, but very comprehensive deception. Based on recommend, recommendations received from Vietnam, uh, Sidden would work up the targets in Cambodia to be struck. Then he would bring them to Kissinger in the White House for approval. Kissinger was very hands-on, Ray Sidden recalled in, in an oral history. He, revi he revised some of Sidden's work. I'd, um, once Kissinger was satisfied with the proposed targets, the coordinates would be back-channeled to Saigon, and from there, a courier would pass them on to the appropriate radar stations, where an officer would make a last-minute switch. B-52s would be diverted from its cover target in South Vietnam into Cambodia, where it, where, and then it would drop its bomb load on the real target in Cambodia, not South Vietnam. When the run was completed, the officer in charge of the deception on the ground would burn whatever documents, maps, computer printouts, radar reports, messages, and so on, that might reveal the actual target. 
A whole special furnace was set up in South Vietnam to dispose of the, the records of the bombing targets that was kept going day and night. Uh, one colonel who, who was a whistleblower who, who led to the revealing of this story in 1973 testified that every piece of paper, including scratch paper, the paper that one of our computers might have done some figuring on, every piece of scrap paper was gathered up. I would wait until daylight, and as soon as that time came, I would go out and burn, burn all of the paperwork. He would then write up false uh, post-strike paperwork indicating uh, uh, that the South Vietnam sortie was flown as planned. That way, Congress and Pentagon administrators would be provided phony target reports and other forged data so as to account for actual expenditures, fuel, bombs, and spare parts, without ever having to reveal that Cambodia was the actual target. Now, when I told friends and colleagues that I was writing a book about the legacy of Henry Kissinger, and particularly Kissinger's uh, focusing a good deal on Kissinger in Cambodia, uh, many made mention of, a, of, of another book that some of you here may, not, may know, Christopher Hitchens' The Trial of Henry Kissinger. But I saw my purpose as somewhat antithetical to Hitchens' polemic, which I think is a good example of what the great historian Charles Beard called a devil's theory of war. According to Beard, a devil's theory of war is one that places all of the blame for militarism on a single, isolatable cause, a wicked man, in Beard's uh, phrase. To really understand the sources of conflict, Beard said, you had to look at the big picture, to consider the way war is our own work, emerging out of the total military and economic situation. In making the case that Kissinger should be tried and convicted for war crimes, Hitchens didn't look at the big picture. Instead, he focused obsessively on the morality of one man, his devil, Henry Kissinger. Yet aside from assembling the docket and gathering the accused wrongdoings in one place, the trial of Henry Kissinger is not very useful, and I think it's actually counterproductive. Righteous indignation doesn't provide much room for critical thinking. Hitchens burrows deep into Kissinger's dark heart, the statesman was implicated in horrors in Cambodia, Laos, Bangladesh, Vietnam, East Timor, Latin America, Southern Africa, Sheridan Circle in Washington against the Kurds in the Middle East. Hitchens leaves readers waiting for him to come out and tell us what it all means. That is besides the obvious, that Kissinger is a war criminal. But Hitchens never does. And most students of Henry Kissinger find it, find it hard to say anything about Kissinger that isn't about Kissinger. He's such an outsized figure that he eclipses his own context. He leads his, leading as many biographers, uh, critics, and admirers to focus nearly exclusively on the quirks of his personality or his moral failings. Now, Seymour Hersh's 1983 The Price of Power, Kissinger in the Nixon White House, did capture the secretive world of the national security apparatus as it was functioning during the Vietnam War. And his study of Kissinger, Kissinger's paranoia, reads like a, a somewhat innocent prelude to the all-pervading surveillance and counterterrorism state that we all now live under. Hirsch gave us the defining portrait of Kissinger as a preening paranoid, tacking back and forth between ruthlessness and sycophancy to advance his career, cursing his fate and letting fly the B-52s. Uh, in Hirsch's hands, he's small in his vanities, he's shabby in his motives, 
but Kissinger is nonetheless Shakespearean because his pettiness gets played out on the world stage with epic consequences. But Hirsch, writing in the early 1980s, couldn't know the long-term effects, not only of specific policies, but of how Kissinger's imperial, what I call is imperial existentialism, and I'll come back to that term, previewed a later generations, a later generation of militarists who in the 1990s, uh, after a quick detour through Central America and Panama, would lead us deeper into the Gulf and then after 9-11 into Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, Henry Kissinger is 100 years old, and his life runs through the decades like a bright red line, shedding light uh, on the road that has brought us to where we now find ourselves, from Vietnam and Cambodia to Persian Gulf. Now, let me stress here that I do not hold Kissinger to be singularly responsible for the evolution of the national security state in the United States into, into what it's become, a kind of perpetual motion machine. But his extended career does illuminate that evolution like nobody else's. In particular, Kissinger was a key player during a transformative moment of the imperial presidency in the 1960s, and his career overlaps with a very consequential moment in US history. In the 1960s and 70s, when the Vietnam War undermined the traditional foundations on which the old national security state stood on since at least the early years of the Cold War. Those foundations were elite planning, bipartisanship, bipartisan consensus, and public support. Now, the unraveling of America's long mid-century domestic consensus, which but ran from about 1941 to 1966, had begun earlier under Lyndon Johnson and had many causes, uh, civil rights movement, political economy of the United States, uh, student protests, and uh, other foreign policies. But Nixon and Kissinger took the, the crisis to a new level. The illegal bombing of an invasion of Cambodia, of which Kissinger was the architect and ex executor, kicked off a series of events including the killing of protesters in Kent State and Jackson Universities that led directly to Watergate and to Nixon's resignation in 1974. Paranoia fueled paranoia. Crimes led to more crimes. Uh, today, Watergate is largely remembered as a, as a domestic scandal, but it was really about foreign policy, namely the desire to keep the mad bombing of Cambodia secret. And it was Kissinger, more than any other Nixon staffer, who got Nixon riled up about Daniel Ellsberg's 1971 leaking of the Pentagon Papers. Reading the transcripts and, uh, of the conversations that went on in the White House, you could see how Kissinger was very instrumental in getting, in getting Nixon worked up about, about Ellsberg. You know, the Pentagon Papers were not particularly incriminating about the Nixon administration. They, they stopped its, their history under the Johnson administration, but Kissinger was fearful that Ellsberg if he had access to the Pentagon Papers, also had access to information about, about Operation Menu. So he was, he was very determined to get Nixon to, to, um, to act on Ellsberg. Uh, Curse that son of a bitch, I know him well, he began one Oval Office meeting. He's a despicable bastard. Ehrlichman remembered Kissinger as being passionate in his denunciation of Ellsberg. Kissinger keyed his performance to stir up Nixon's various resentments. Uh, he depicted Ellsberg as some kind of liberal and hedonistic superman. He was smart, subversive, perverse, and privileged. 
There's not any one moment we can identify that kicks off the chain of events that leads to, to Watergate. But there's one line in some of these transcripts, in, in, these, in one of the transcripts when they were discussing Ellsberg, that, that I like to think of as the moment where Nixon, Nixon lost it. And that's when Kissinger tells Nixon, you know, he's married a very rich girl. You know, there's something about that line that, that, that it, those who know is Nixon's various resentments, the idea that Ellsberg was somehow sexually promiscuous and, and got the girls, you know, was, you know, was key to, to stir up Nixon's resentments. You know, Ehrlichman said Nixon was fascinated. Uh, Henry got Nixon cranked up, and then, and, and, then, and then they started cranking each other up until they were in a frenzy. It shows you're a weakling, Mr. President, Kissinger told Ellsberg, if you were to let Ellsberg get away with it. And then crimes led to more crimes. Kissinger was involved in many of the early plotting, including wiretaps placed on close friends and associates, the surveillances and meetings where the nation's highest office, officers smeared anti-war dissidents as treasonous elites and gave orders to run paramilitary black bag operations, including the, the, the break-in of Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office in, in California in order to find incriminating evidence. There's one meeting where, where Kissinger and Nixon and Haldeman are sitting around, and, and they're discussing um, figuring out ways that they could blackmail Lyndon Johnson into coming out to denouncing Ellsberg. I mean, the idea of a sitting president sitting around with, you know, his in a, in a circle discussing blackmailing the previous president, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a scene. Um, yet even as Vietnam and Watergate was breaking up the old national security state, Kissinger, who would survive Watergate and continue on in his position as national security advisor and secretary of state under Gerald Ford, was helping with its reconstruction in a new form, a restored imperial presidency uh, capable of moving forward in a, in a post-Vietnam world. So that's one of the arguments of the book, that Kissinger simultaneously presides over the crack-up and the undoing of the old national security state, even as he's working to kind of reconstitute it on, on new footings that one would find familiar, you know, look through through the prism of today. You know, there's different elements of this new security state. Uh, I'll just list three of them. One is the increased dependence on secrecy and covert action uh, to bypass what had become a, a, a meddlesome Congress, an inquisitive press corps, and a skeptical public, and a dissenting public. Uh, Kissinger's off the books, not just uh, operations in Cambodia, but um, his, his uh, support of insurgencies and proxy wars in southern Africa in many ways um, provided a template for the Reagan administration's expansion of similar clandestine operations in Nicaragua throughout the third world, including in Nicaragua, Iran-Contra, for instance. Uh, another element of the new restored national security state is the increasing use of militarism to leverage domestic polarization. So if if polarization, domestic polarization, is leading to the crack-up of the national security state, um, politicians and increasingly use foreign policy to leverage that polarization to their advantage. Robert Dalek, who wrote a great book on Kissinger and Nixon, he's a historian, said you could look at the whole, every foreign policy initiative of Nixon and Kissinger, and you can't find one that wasn't also used for domestic gain. 
In particular, Nixon and Kissinger were very concerned with keeping the right wing in the Republican Party or winning over Southern racists from the Democratic Party. They had their eye on 1972. Uh, the Southern strategy, in other words, had a foreign policy component, and that was Cambodia, that was Laos, that was support for white supremacy in Southern Africa. Kissinger was constantly being dispatched to calm down and, and appease movement conservatives, including Ronald Reagan, who was, who was governor of California. Uh, during one meeting, with, um, with Reagan, uh, he was trying to convince Reagan that it actually made a difference that Nixon, rather a de- than a Democrat, was in office. He said, we wouldn't have had Cambodia if it was Humphrey. We wouldn't have had Laos. You know, again, so Cambodia and Laos, are, and the, the, the destruction of Cambodia and Laos are, are put forth domestic political game. Now, obviously, other presidents and administrations had used war and foreign policy for domestic benefit, but this, the late 60s and 70s is a kind of qualitative shift in which the increasing polarization, foreign policy, and not just foreign policy, but militarism, war, threats of war, and saber-rattling are increasingly needed to hold together uh, and bring together and bind a conservative, the rising new right. Another element of the restored imperial presidency or the rehabilitated national security state is the deployment of ever more spectacular displays of violence to shock and awe a war-weary and skeptical citizenry, a point I'll come back to later. But neither covert operations nor political opportunism were Kissinger's chief contribution to the post-Vietnam resurgence of American militarism. Uh, Rather, Kissinger's main legacy is metaphysical. Now, conventional wisdom opposes Henry Kissinger to the neoconservatives who drove us into Iraq in in 2003 and Afghanistan in 2002. Dick Cheney, Paul Wolferitz, Donald Rumsfeld. Kissinger's sober realism is said to be of a different philosophical tradition than the heady arrogance of an administration that thought that the United States was so powerful that it could make reality. I don't know if you remember that famous quote that the journalist Ron Suskin took from a Bush staffer that many now believe was Karl Rove, that you know, uh, the United States is an empire now, and when we act, we make reality. You live in a reality-based community. Uh, you're busy recording y- y- your facts and data and, you- and judiciously as you will, but as you're doing that, we're going to be acting again and we're going to be making reality, right? That's a, a quote that many, many took to, 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 inca- to, to illustrate what, what was said to be a kind of blind arrogance of the Bush administration. And it is true that many of the most prominent neoconservatives in the last days of the Ford administration, did use Kissinger as a foil. They said that he was an appeaser for uh, detente. They said he was a loser because of Vietnam. And they said they was, he was a sinner because he, did, he supposedly didn't believe in American morality or American righteousness. Dick Cheney and others had a morality plank inserted into the Republican platform in 1976 that was understood to be an anti-Kissinger plank. But I think conventional wisdom that opposes the neocons to Kissinger is wrong. I think there's a misrecognition of Kissinger, and I think in that misrecognition, it's a useful pedagogy. It's a, there's, there's an education there in that, in, that, in that misrecognition. If realism is taken as a view of the world that holds that reality is transparent and that the truth of facts 
can be arrived at from simply observing those facts, then Kissinger was not decidedly not a realist. Of all of the policymakers that, who helped construct the post-World War II national security state, Kissinger, born in Germany, was perhaps the most self-aware of the philosophical underpinnings of his diplomacy, of his actions. He was deeply influenced by an anti-rationalist and extremely subjectivist strand of German metaphysics that, considering how often it was used to just, Kissinger used it to justify war and more war, bombing and more bombing, we might call imperial existentialism. In Kissinger's shadow, I explore how this romanticism manifested itself in Kissinger's specific policies, and in particularly in, in, in the bombing of Cambodia. And then once he left office in his ongoing and consistent effort to militarize the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. But here are some of its major beliefs. That action creates our perception of reality. Reality might exist. Kissinger wasn't a solipsist, but he, he believed that there was reality, but, but, but he believed we had no access to the reality. Our understanding and perception of that reality was based on our own experience, and that it was through our action in the world that we came to an understanding of reality. Um, that the past has no meaning other than what we in the present assign to it, and that the future is undetermined. That the greatest of great statesmen are aware of this freedom, and refuse to be paralyzed by the past or held captive by an overabundance of data and intelligence produced by modern bureaucracies. They act on hunches and intuition and they thrive on, as Kissinger wrote in 1954, perpetual creation on a constant redefinition of goals. It is the responsibility of true leaders, he said, not only to maintain the perfection of order, but to have the strength to contemplate chaos they had to find material for fresh creation. That kind of German irrationalism is often associated with Nietzsche, but in, in Kissinger's undergraduate thesis, which he submitted in 1950, which was the longest undergraduate thesis ever submitted in Harvard, it was 400 pages, a long meditation on, on Kant, on Spengler, on, on Toynbee, uh, Alfred Toynbee on, on, uh, Toynbee, on Kant, Immanuel Kant. The person that he's most drawn to is Oswald Spengler. Uh, Spengler was a very influential historian slash philosopher writing in the early 20th century, and, he, and he's very well known for having a schema of the rise and decline of civilizations. And according to Spengler, you can chart out the moment of decline of great civilizations. The moment of decline is when the economists and the bookkeepers and the accountants and the bureaucrats take over from the priests and the poets and the, and the warriors. When, when civilizations forget why they are projecting power, they only know that they can project power, right? Become, power becomes instrumentalized. Uh, we lose our sense of purpose. We lose our sense of, of, of our understanding of our own selves and our own role in, in, in society and in history. Kissinger was extremely influenced by Spengler but he rejected Spengler's determinism. Spengler was a deep pessimist. He believed that there was no turning back once, once, you, once the fact men or the causality men take over. The de decline is, is inevitable. Kissinger in 1950 and then throughout his, his, his academic and policy career would constantly insist that you can intervene in history, 
that you could reverse the trend, you could push the curve upwards, that decline wasn't inevitable. I mean, reading Kissinger's undergraduate thesis, one is reminded, or at least I am, more than anything else, of a, of a kind of post-war existentialism. A kind of, you know, Kissinger is constantly talking about um, the relationship between necessity and freedom. Uh, he sounds very much like Jean-Paul Sartre, who he cites in his bibliography, who's whose existentialism is a humanism, a famous influential essay that, that laid out the terms of what would be post-war existentialism, was translated into English a few years earlier and Kissinger read and cited. Um, but what's interesting about Kissinger, again, is where other existentialists, or where existentialism went on to influence the new left in the 1960s to protest war, to protest colonialism, to protest power, Kissinger puts it to defend war, to defend militarism, and to, and to defend power. And I think that that's one of the, um, one of the things that's, that's, that's interesting about, about Kissinger. You're listening to Greg Grandin on Kissingerism. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Kissinger is known, best known for the concept of balance of power. But there's a fascinating and rarely cited passage, not in his undergraduate thesis, but in his graduate thesis, 1954 doctoral dissertation, where he insists that what he means by this is not real power. He says, he writes that a balance of power legitimated by power would be highly unstable and make unlimited wars almost inevitable for equilibrium is achieved not by the fact but by the awareness of power, by the consciousness of power. And Kissinger goes on to write that this consciousness is never brought about until it is tested. In order to test power, That is, in order to create our awareness of power, one needs to be willing to act. And the best way to produce that willingness is to act. So what Kissinger is saying here, and what he has said at different times throughout his life, including in his last book, is that inaction has to be avoided in order to prove that action was possible. Only action, he wrote in 1957, could void the systemic incentive for inaction. Only action could overcome the paralyzing fear of of the drastic consequences that might result from action. And there he's talking about the willingness to use limited nuclear weapons in a war with the Soviet Union. The purpose of American power then was to create an awareness of American power, of American purpose. We can't defend our interests until we know what our interests are, and we can't know what our interests are until we defend them. Kissinger taught that there was no such thing as stasis in international affairs. Great states are always either gaining or losing influence, which means that the balance of power has to be constantly tested through gesture and through deed. I focus a good deal on Cambodia as a good example of this perpetual motion machine, as has been demonstrated by other historians, most recently by Ken Hughes, in, in, in a wonderful book called Chasing Shadows. Uh, Kissinger helped get Nixon elected in 1968 by derailing the Paris peace talks. 
passing on information that Nixon then used to convince South Vietnam not to, not to agree to any deal that Washington or Hanoi might make in order to wait that they'd get a better deal if Nixon was president. Uh, Nixon won that election. He beat Humphrey. Um, he appointed Kissinger uh, national security advisor. But then Nixon and Kissinger, as I mentioned earlier, had to figure out a way to resume the peace talks, because, which they helped derail, because they had, Nixon had been elected promising to get the U.S. out of the war. There were, there were few other reasons for bombing Cambodia to disrupt the supply of munitions and the, Ho, the famous Ho Chi Minh Trail. Kissinger also used the bombing of Cambodia to draw himself closer to the militarists within Nixon's inner circle, uh, uh, proving that he was the hawk of hawks, as, as, uh, as, as Haldeman called him. Um, but one of the main reasons was to force North Vietnam back to the bargaining table. For a number of different reasons, they couldn't immediately begin bombing North Vietnam. Johnson had called, had called a ceasefire, a bombing halt as part of the peace talks that, that, um, in November, at the end of October. Um, so, so Nixon and Kissinger began bombing Cambodia. Uh, and they began bombing Cambodia, as I mentioned, in secret, using those protocols from Operation Men Menu from 69 to 70, but the bombing continued actually through 73. Half a million tons of bombs, and at least by conservative and credible estimates, 100,000 100, civilians dead. So in other words, we have to escalate to prove that we are an impotent, and the more impotent we prove to be, the more we have to escalate. And in so doing, Kissinger helped tra transform Nixon's famous madman theory, Right, the idea that we had that Nixon wanted to k telegraph to Hanoi that he was crazy and he might do anything uh, uh, from performance, an act meant to convey insanity, to, to an actual act of moral insanity, the destruction of a neutral country for no effect other than its destruction. You know, there's a, Bob Woodward has a new book that's coming out in a few days. Um, I think it's called The Last of the President's Men, and it's based on extensive interviews with I can't remember his first name, but his last name is Butterfield. He was the man in charge of, of recording the conversations in the Nixon White House. And uh, Butterfield apparently had a lot of documents that he took with him when he, when he left uh, the White House. And one of them was a, was a report uh, showing that, I think it was in, in mid-1972, that the, by this point, bombing of North Vietnam and South Vietnam had recommenced, bombing of Laos, bombing of Cambodia, and, uh, and it's, it accomplished absolutely nothing. And, and, and Nixon wrote in his hand, right, in his, uh, I just read, this was just in the Washington Post today, uh, Nixon just wrote, this, we've accomplished zilch. You know, it's the, I think Woodward is calling it the zilch memo, you know, zilch. Again, the foreign policy, you know, the, the destruction of a country for absolutely no reason. So here's the circle. Kissinger and Nixon's bombing helped accelerate Cambodia's civil war. It provoked a coup, which in turn provoked a U.S. invasion, which in turn spread the civil war, which in turn escalated the bombing. And not just in Cambodia, over and over again, in Laos, in North Vietnam, Angola, Mozambique, and elsewhere, Kissinger in office plunged into the vortex of his own circular argument. Inaction has to be avoided in order to prove that action was possible. Now, in office, Kissinger proved to be the ultimate anti-realist, right? He, he, tried, he, he, um, he tried to bring about the world he believed he ought to live in rather than the one he actually did live in. The world that he believed he ought to live in was one in which you would use overwhelming military force to break the back of an enemy 
and get you away. The world that he li did live in was a world, as he put it, I refuse to believe that a little fourth-rate power like North Vietnam doesn't have a breaking point. And of course it didn't in, in this case. For a very brief moment with the first Gulf War, now Kissinger now out of office, it did seem that the reality that he had wanted to come into being actually did come into being. Um, you know, Kissinger played a key role in uh, building support for that war among conservatives. There were a lot of Cold War conservatives like Gene Kirkpatrick. This was in 1990. Uh, Iraq had invaded Kuwait, and George Bush immediately sent troops, built up troops in Saudi Arabia, and then there was a bit of a standoff. What were we going to do? Were we going to invade and liberate Kuwait? Were we going to go on, go on, march on to Baghdad? There were a number of Cold War conservatives, including Gene Kirkpatrick, who thought, you know, we have no vital interest in the Gulf. What does it matter who pumps the oil? That was literally the sentence that Gene Kirkpatrick said. Gene Kirkpatrick had just written, wrote an article for the National Interest talking about the need for focus, now that the Cold War was over, uh, focusing our attentions on the United States, to turning our resources on rebuilding the United States. Kissinger was first out of the box in attacking what he called these new isolationists and urging and providing an intellectual framework for why we had to liberate Kuwait and overthrow Saddam Hussein. Uh, he was, as far as I know, the first to make the historical analogy that, that Saddam Hussein was Adolf Hitler. That first Gulf War, in some ways, was the perfect inversion of Cambodia, where Cambodia was done in secret because of fear of a public backlash. The debate about the first Gulf War in 1990, 1991, was months in the making. Uh, the bombing of Kuwait took place for all the world to see. It was a display of techno power lit up by night vision goggles, by smart bombs, covered by CNN. And Kissinger himself was everywhere. He was on CNN, he was on PBS, he was on ABC, he was on CBS, he was talking to Ted Koppel, he was talking to Dan Rather. Uh, polls started coming in about, uh, you know, about the support that George, w, George H. W. Bush had for the war. So in some ways, this was, this was the fulfillment of Kissinger's argument in Cambodia, which he had to make in secret and in the dark, but now rendered public. There's a great scene where Kissinger tells Dan Rather, I think it's going well. You know, on the very first day of the bombing, Walter Cronkite has to kind of come in and urge, and urge well, we still have to see how it, how it winds up, how it goes. And so for that very brief period of time, it did seem like the world that Kissinger had wanted to come into being had come into being, where we used an overwhelming uh, amount of technical of, of, of military power in order to break the back of an enemy and drive him out of Kuwait. But of course, looking back now from the, through the prism of Syria, through ISIS, through the invasion, the, the, the 2003 disaster of, of catastrophe of the invasion of Iraq, you know, it seems like maybe it, it hasn't gone so well. Throughout the 1990s, Kissinger was, was very supportive of Bill Clinton's regular bombing of uh, using cruise missiles to, 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 you know, uh, to bomb Baghdad. But he criticized Clinton for not understanding the reason why we were doing it. The Clinton administration legitimated its bombing of Baghdad by, by, as a way of forcing Saddam Hussein to let weapons inspectors in to uh, support the UN Security Council resolution. Kissinger was very clear that that was a mistake, that, we weren't, that, that it wasn't about weapons of mass destruction, it wasn't about weapons inspectors, it was about matching our actions to our will. It was about what are we going to do with somebody we refuse to negotiate with. 
that are we going to let them stand or are we going to bring them down? And then I think it was in 1998, he said, um, that's what he and Nixon did in Southeast Asia, Kissinger said, and whether we got it right or not is really secondary. Now, it's a kind of remarkable statement, right? Uh, uh, whether we got it right or not is really secondary, that what mattered is the demonstrative effect that it has on the domestic public. It's not really remarkable when one considers Kissinger's longstanding insistence that that demonstrative effect on America produced by one's act of will is more important than the consequences of that act on its foreign victims, and that he supported the, the bombing of Libya, the invasion of Panama, as I mentioned, Gulf One and Gulf Two. Now, all of this might sound familiar, and it should, because Kissinger's philosophy of history is basically the metaphysical dance card of the neoconservatives, of those who believe that America creates its own reality, of William Crystal, who constantly complains that Americans have grown too soft, of Dick Cheney, whose 1% doctrine held that if there is even 1%, uh, even the slightest chance that a threat will be realized, the U.S. should act as if that threat was a foregone conclusion. After 9-11, Kissinger was an early supporter of attacking not just Afghanistan and Iraq, but Somalia and Yemen as well. He called on Bush to launch what he, what he called a revolution in international relations and international law to sweep away all antiquated notions of sovereignty. On August 22, 2002, when Dick Cheney in a speech laid out his fullest case for why war in Iraq was the only option, uh, he directly quoted Kissinger saying that there was, quote, an imperative for preemptive action. And then once the occupation turned disastrous, once the public, after Abu Ghraib, after, after all of that, Kissinger regularly met with Bush staff as citing his experience in Vietnam for why the U.S. shouldn't withdraw troops. I want to say that I think neoconservatism is just the, the high least, the most self-conscious core of a broad consensus that reaches out be, well beyond Republican and Democrat to capture ideologue and pragmatist alike, realist and idealist. Hillary Clinton, who in 1970 protested Kissinger's invasion of Cambodia, recently praised Kissinger, calling him her friend and saying that she relied on his counsel. The famous realist, she said, referring to Kissinger's most recent book, sounds surprisingly idealistic. Kissinger's vision, she said, is her vision, just and liberal. Defense intellectuals and journalists regularly pen essays prescribing a neo-Kissingerian tonic for today's troubles, though they often have trouble defining what exactly that would look like. Often Kissingerism is defined in negative terms. It's not the recklessness of, of, uh, of the neocons, though I, though I think it is that. And it's not the Barack Obama's pragmatic overcorrection over of foreign policy that, that mistakes efficiency for meaning and power for purpose, though again, Kissinger himself did exactly that. That Kissingerism is so hard to pin down, I think, is an effect of Kissingerism, of the rehabilitation of the national security state and the relentless militarism that goes with it, constant unending war, be it fought with neocon zealotry or, or drone-like efficiency, has done more than caution thought and morality. I think it's brought about a disassociation of words and things, beliefs and actions, in which abstractions are transmuted into their opposites. According to Clinton, Hillary Clinton, idealists are realists, and everybody is liberal, and Henry Kissinger is our avatar. At the very least, I think we could learn from Kissinger's long life that the two defining concepts of American foreign policy, 
realism and idealism aren't opposing values. Rather, they reinforce each other. Uh, idealism gets us into whatever the quagmire of the moment is. Realism keeps us there while promising to get us out. And then idealism returns anew to justify the realism and to overcome it in the next round. Thank you. You say that Christopher Hitchens misses the point, that he doesn't get the big picture, that he has a devil's theory and tries to place all of the blame on one man. But war crimes tribunals are very useful. You need to explain why Henry Kissinger should not be prosecuted for war crimes. So I think that he should be prosecuted for war crimes. I think it's necessary but not sufficient. Okay, a couple of things. One is Hitchens wrote that book in 2002. He quickly went on to dine and sup with Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney, uh, both literally and figuratively in the support of, in, in the verve in which he wanted to conduct what he imagined to be a global war against Islamofascism. And he would occasionally do updates on his Kissinger. He would, whenever a new tranche of documents came out, he would write something for, you know, Harper's or something. And the way that he squared that circle was exactly by extracting Kissinger as exceptional to American history. My point is that I don't think Kissinger is exceptional to American history. I think he embodies American history. And that I think, that, I think is the difference. In terms of whether, of course Kissinger should be, of course he should be tried for war crimes, but so should Bush and Cheney and... The National Security State started with Truman. He created the CIA and the National Security Council. He went to war in Korea without a declaration from Congress. The Kennedys tried to assassinate Castro, and LBJ took us to war in Vietnam. So it didn't really start with Henry Kissinger. I think it started with Harry Truman. Yeah, absolutely, and I try to make clear that the National Security State has had many administrators and that it's existed at least since 1947, and certainly the warfare state as it is, has ex I mean, you can count the number of years in which the U.S. hasn't been at war with somebody since its inception. So the, the warfare state is, even predates what we would officially, would, would we would conventionally think of as the national security state. But I do think differences in form matter, and I, and I do think the, the crack up of the domestic consensus in the 60s creates a new set of challenges and imperatives that, that need to be confronted in order to continue the push outward. I think that the, that the neoconservative project of confronting that crack up, confronting what they called, what they complained about as being a, an entrenched adversarial culture within the United States, as using war as a way of hardening and stealing the U.S. domestic politics, I think that is a I think that is that something that is different from other iterations in the, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge, and the genocide in Cambodia are often used to justify further U.S. military involvement elsewhere in the world. In the case of Cambodia, did U.S. policy lead to genocide? So uh, William Shawcroft in, 19, in the late 70s wrote uh, Sideshow, and that was the first book to make the case that Kissinger's bombing of, of, of Cambodia creates the conditions for the rise of the Khmer Rouge. 
I actually deal with that argument extensively in, in, in at least one chapter in this book because Kissinger is obsessed with that argument and every memoir that he's written, he's tried to refute it without actually mentioning Shawcross's name. Ben Kiernan, uh, an historian of Cambodia at Yale University, was extremely helpful in, in helping me work through a lot of that, a lot of the cause and effect between Kissinger's bombing and the rise of the Khmer Rouge. The bombing of Cambodia continued until August 1973 when Congress finally put a halt to it. But the worst of the bombing happened in the last four months of that, of that year. The U.S. dropped more bombs in the middle of 1973 on Cambodia than it did in the previous three or four years combined. It was devastating. Kissinger often likes to make this joke that I will accept responsibility for the Khmer Rouge if the British, this was to a BBC reporter, if you, accept, if, your bar, if, you, if you admit that your bombing of Hamburg you know, uh, led to the Holocaust. Of course it's a crazy, fatuous analogy because the bombing of Hamburg took place after the rise of the Nazis. The bombing of Cambodia took place before the rise of the Khmer Rouge. But I think in the clumsiness of that analogy is actually something very instructive. Is Kissinger can't can't explain away the Khmer Rouge. What Ben Kiernan argues and others have argued is it's not that, it's not that there wasn't an eliminationist um, strand within the Khmer Rouge represented by Pol Pot. It's that the massive bombing of Cambodia, and it, including everything else that it did, the coups and the invasions and the, and the telegraphing of the Vietnam War into Cambodia, it greatly increased the power of, that, of what had been a small faction within the Khmer Rouge, that genocidal faction, to take power. So I think there is a direct cause and effect relationship between Kissinger's bombing and, and Pol Pot's genocide. And it's a question that, um, that Kissinger has, has gone to great pains to, to try to distance himself from, but I think it's one of the most damning accusations and accurate. Saddam Hussein was a close U.S. ally throughout the 1980s. Why did Washington, particularly the Clinton administration, and later the George W. Bush administration, turn against him? Well, by that point, the U.S. had, had made regime change official policy. The Clinton administration had, I mean, it, it had passed Congress. The Clinton administration signed off on it. Well, this is the question, right? How much ideology versus interests? I mean, one could imagine, you know, a, a kind of more instrumental realist understanding of power, like, you know, why? What's the insanity? We could have added Gene Kirkpatrick. What does it matter who pumps the oil, right? And this is where I think ideology does come in and does explain. I think that the question of, you know, what drives U.S. foreign policies, real interests or, or, domestic, or domestic ideology? I mean, I've done fall on the side of domestic ideology. I think the neoconservative movement, which, which soar as its historical mission as rolling back the Vietnam syndrome had committed itself to, to taking out Saddam Hussein one way or the other. Pre-9-11, by the way, you know, you know, Wolfowitz and Kagan. I mean, Wolfowitz and Kagan, they were writing article, articles, you know, pre-9-11. Wolfowitz wrote an article celebrating the fact that Clinton was bombing everybody, but then complaining there weren't enough casualties because the casualties didn't give us a sense of what it took, right? There was, you know, there's, 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 a, there's a strong theme within the kind of neoconservative project that war is really about hardening domestic politics and, 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 and overcoming the f domestic flab over civilization, over, over, you know, a softness that has overtaken us. And, and remember, after 9-11, after this was a sentiment that was shared across the political spectrum. George Packer, right? 
uh, David Brooks. Everybody was excited about 9-11 because finally we had a, we had a sense of ourselves again. And that's, and that's, that's, a cur- that's a current that I think Kissinger represents. And it's a critique that Kissinger has had of American power since the 50s. And I think by tracing it out, you know, again, it's not to blame Kissinger for everything, but understanding how he represents this deeper current in, in U.S. militarism. There are aspects of foreign policy I and many other people I know strongly disagree with. What can we do to hold accountable our leaders who commit crimes? It's hard and it's often depressing to know what to do considering the immunity and impunity in which so much, so many people in our political and economic class act. I, I guess the, what I would say is look to Latin America. Latin America has, has a long experience in persistent doggedness in terms of trying to hold people accountable. It takes decades, it takes, it takes years, it takes decades, it takes even longer than decades, and there's lots of setbacks. But it's these social movements that link a kind of uh, uh, attempt to end impunity to larger issues of economic justice, of social justice, that have constantly pushed the envelope in Latin America, that, you know, in Chile, in Argentina, in, in other countries, and certainly in Guatemala, there's a sense that no matter how hard the challenge, there's a constant push and effort. So I often don't know. I think there is, a, there is a kind of exceptionalism about the United States that almost makes it immune to those kind of social movements having any kind of political effect. But I would just, I would just look to Latin America for inspiration. That's what I would say. Thank you. Thank you very much. You were just listening to Greg Grandin on Kissingerism. This classic from the AR archives was recorded at the University of Montana in 2015. Greg Grandin, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, is professor of history at Yale. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Medea Benjamin, and Arundhati Roy. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website, where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Greg Grandin on Kissingerism, And for Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets on the CIA Coups and Assassinations, just call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Beth Ann Austin. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with The Clash, Washington Bullets. Mama, mama, look there You children are playing in the street again Don't you know what happened down there? A youth of 14 got shot down there The cocaine guns are jammed downtown The killing clowns are blood money men Shooting clothes Washington bullets again Cause every 
chilly will tell the cries of the tortured men. Remember Lenny in the days before, before the army came. Please remember Victor Hara in the Santiago Stadium. Check the British bullets in his armory. 